0: In a crackdown of rebel groups, Myanmar military carried out its airstrikes in northern state
1: of Kachin, killing over 60 people and leaving around 100 others injured. Just a quick note before today's show, while we have transformed our entire platform to respond to the ongoing crisis in Myanmar, increasing our production of both podcast episodes and blogs, we cannot continue without your support. Please consider making a donation or contributing as a volunteer to support our active engagement at this critical time.
0: possible my heart bleeds my hands go numb and my brain asks me what will your reaction be today wrath or woe rest in peace or rot in pieces
1: excited for the upcoming conversation that we're going to have with igor blazevich uh, igor thanks so much for taking the time to join us and talk to us here at inside Myanmar podcast
0: thank you very much it's really a pleasure and honor for me because uh, partly because you are yourself doing a great work because you already had a, such a, such a marvelous group of the people who are speaking so it's a nice and pleasure and honor to be in a company
1: well thank you you're you're very kind and you're you're certainly part of that great audience that we're bringing in you've led quite an eventful life and your life more recently has intersected quite strongly with the Myanmar democratic period but before we get into Myanmar I want to go back into your life and your background, where you came from, and what or uh, earlier in life, what you were facing, what you were doing. I think that'll probably lead into me and So, can you take us back to the start and tell us a bit about uh, about yourself and your background?
0: Um, I, I was born in a Bosnia, in a former Yugoslavia. Uh, I have grown up in a city named Sarajevo, and uh, I basically have been the. Reading person. Uh, as, a, as a as a young man, I was uh, I was pretty much a social zombie. Uh, I uh, mm-hmm. was spending most of my time sitting and reading books and hoping and dreaming that in one moment I will write a book as well. Uh, I have studied, uh, in one moment I moved from Sarajevo to Zagreb, another town in Croatia in former Yugoslavia. I studied philosophy and literature and continued this path toward uh, writing, thinking, basically internal sensibility, reflection. Uh, but then the war started in my country. In that moment I was uh, uh, living a short period of time in uh, uh, Czechoslovakia at that time. That was early 90s after the Velvet Revolution and after changing here. But the war started in my country, in, in Bosnia, first in Croatia and then in Bosnia. And that profoundly changed me. Let's say they changed me from being a social zombie uh, because I started, let's say, to be active and to looking how I am as an individual. And with the groups of the people can respond on the on the destruction, on the evil, of the on the end of everything what you believed is a humanity. Uh, and, uh, and I basically kind of the, in that moment uh, as Wikipedia uh, describes me now, became a prominent uh, human rights defender uh, of the Bosnian origin living in a Czech Republic Europe.
1: Mm. Mm, that's that's really interesting. And I think you hit upon this theme that we've been seeing so much in the last year and a half in Myanmar of what happens when everything you think you know about a society and about being human, about one's own humanity and what it means to be safe and to, to have a normal and conventional life has just been suddenly and terribly uprooted. And this is something that uh, it's a topic I've been, unfortunately, uh, quite fascinated and interested in for the last year and a half, just because it relates so much to what my friends are going through and how to support them and trying to better understand myself, historical examples and things that have happened before to better equip myself for being able to understand and support what's happening now, because this is something that is is so new for me and new for many people in Myanmar as well, how violent and and sudden it was. Uh, We can get into the Myanmar example a bit later, but I I, I'm, I'm foregrounding some of this, uh, these thoughts and reflections because I think they can relate to your early years and what was happening with the Bosnian Civil War, so as you found yourself as a young man, as many young people are in, in Myanmar now, having these institutions and the safety ripped out from under you so violently and so so suddenly and, and traumatically, uh, can you describe a bit about what actually was happening in that context as you were growing up and then how you responded to it and how it felt as well? <laughs>
0: What what happened with me, and in a certain way, what happened uh, with all of us in a, in a Bosnia, in a Sarajevo what is in a different way but similar happening in Myanmar now, uh, suddenly everything what you believed is your own life is stopped. You can't continue that. Uh, everything what you believed uh, that it's your either neighborhood or city or, or region or country, whatever, that you identify yourself with suddenly is in uh, you know, that kind of a danger that you have a reasonable uh, guess that it can Disappear, that it can be totally destroyed, which cannot. Let's say, luckily, cannot. But in, when you are sitting in the middle of that horror, you really think, let's say, this is the end of the days. Let's say, everything will disappear in a, in a total destruction. Uh, so it's a terrifying experience. It's just simply. Basically, your whole life and everything around you uh, is falling apart. Everything what you believed is a humanity, is a values, is a disappearing. You are facing uh, and looking at the worst what humans can produce. But at the same time, let's say suddenly all around you, you see also the best what humans have in themselves. Let's say because these extreme situations are really taking out from the human beings the worst which they can do, and then from some others is taking out. Uh, uh, the best, what human beings are capable to do, in a in a sense of the courage, in a sense of the self sacrifice, in a sense of the commitment to the to the others, and then you are making uh, choices all you very often are not in a position to make a choices. But, uh, but let's say one of the choices is some people simply try to escape. Let's say which it is a normal human, or if you want, it's normal animal reaction. Yeah. No, you know, you, you flee. You flee uh-huh. if you can. Uh, and, and I have never blamed people who have done that uh, decision, neither in Yugoslavia, neither in Bosnia, nor in other places. It's a legitimate choice not to not to be a hero, but at the same time, let's say, thanks God, that there is always people around ourselves who are ready to be the heroes and who are able to basically turn the bad histories in uh, another direction. The other possibility is uh, then that you basically kind of understand uh, that you You cannot move the mountain. You cannot stop the war. You cannot kind of uh, yourself or with people around you stop the really cataclysmatic uh, uh, falling apart of everything. But you can do the small things. You can do the small actions with the discipline, with the endurance, small things that go against that. And uh, and that was what I learned in Bosnia, it's a good thing to do, that not to let despair and frustration swallow you, uh, destroy you, let's say, although you can't remove them every single night, every single day, the trauma is coming back, but somehow you live with that, you absorb that, you cry when you, you feel the pain, but at the same time, let's say, you kick off yourself and do your small act of the goodness, your small act of the contribution. And as said, let's say there are certain people who are also kind of ready and able and capable to do the extraordinary heroic things and uh and 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 we need them and combination of these people doing small good things and people doing heroic things is something what really can save the humanity if you want save the country save the cities and and that is what i believe in and i do think that people who face these things uh, basically have a in a certain way extraordinary opportunity in their life to accept the challenge of the of the responding in a right way on the on the on the threat to the humanity and and take your own responsibility to uh, to counter that. Uh, that gives uh, a hard work, a, hard, a lot of hard emotions, a lot of pain, but that gives you really one of the most profound, mean, meaningful life and meaningful acts what you can do to respond on a, on a, on a challenge of humanity being uh, threatened and basically counter that with all talent and all energy you have.
1: That's, that's really powerful and as you say that it, what comes to mind is this question that was developing, that was emerging in the weeks and months after the military the Myanmar military coup, which was something to the effect of what person do I want to be now? Who? What is my role? Where do I want to fit in? What am I ready to do? What am I willing to sacrifice? And this was something that these are not trained soldiers or, or professionals or think tanks that are answering these questions. In the case of Myanmar, these were uh, people coming from backgrounds of studying. They were students. They were um, they were in IT. They were taxi drivers, and and the whole gamut, as, uh, as as many people now know, and having to figure out who they were, and even even for me, that was something I had to put to myself. I wasn't in Myanmar, so I wasn't facing the life or death for my own life and the same stakes they were. But certainly there were allies of Myanmar who were outside that were having to figure out to what extent do I want this conflict to start to impact and shape my life and how much I'm willing to sacrifice and to give for, uh, not just for for time and for mental balance, but also for um, depending on how one is connected to the country for uh, uh, other kinds of personal stakes as well. Uh, And I think that when these crises come, these are this question of like, who am I and what do I want to give? This is something you don't know until you're in that moment. And whoever you were before and whatever your skill sets were, it could be vastly different when you're faced in those moments and figuring out what is it I want to do, who is it I want to become, what, what am I willing to sacrifice, how, how am I willing to fit in, and I think in those times of conflict, that's where you really can come to see yourself and to understand oneself who who one really is in those moments. And that's certainly what I've seen of of myself just from where I'm standing and definitely a privileged place, but uh with with where um with how uh, the decisions I've had to make personally of where and how I want to engage and on a much higher stakes and much bigger platform seeing those Myanmar activists in the country that are choosing to what degree they want to participate in, and engage and what they're willing to do, what they're willing to learn. And it's really been remarkable to to see the the maturity and the courage and the selflessness as as some of these values that you mentioned that have risen to the occasion. And so I'm wondering going back to yourself as a young man in that situation, how do you recall how you made that decision, how you found out who am I ready to become? The the old world has been torn down. We're facing what appears in your words as an end of days right now. And there is a a chance and an opportunity to not run away, to do something instead. What is it I want to do? What is it I can do? Do you remember the thought process of how you came to determine who you were going to be in this new world?
0: But I was—I remember it very well. It's, I was uh, uh, in a moment when the uh, war started in uh, Bosnia, in my city, and when city was uh, came under the siege. Uh, I was in that moment uh, in a certain way in a very privileged position because I was, uh, in that moment, living abroad, so I was not in the city. Uh, And uh, my family uh, was in the city. My parents and my my sister, they couldn't get out. Uh, And uh, and in that moment, uh, that was the time before the internet uh, so... Telephone connections have been uh, broken very quickly. So for for first six months, uh, I did n- not get any news about what's go- what's going on with them, with my family. Uh, and uh, the only news what I'm uh, uh, receiving is this kind of... Regular news saying today there has been 100 shells falling on Sarajevo and there are uh, so many dead people, there are so much sniper fire, and that has been nightmare for me, and I spent a certain amount of the time really being totally... Paralyzed from the from the fear, from the terror, from the feeling of the powerlessness. From uh, but then I started to run around Czech Republic to around Prague. Let's say to basically uh, drawing attention was going on, uh, finding some new friends with whom I started to basically uh, collect aid. And very quickly, let's say we let's managed to raise enormous amount, really big amounts of the money here in the Czech Republic, and we started. To, to take this aid to the Bosnia and to Sarajevo. That has been also for me opportunity then to enter into the city. And then I spend the war going in and out, in and out and, and, and bringing the aid. But one thing what I have immediately started to do, uh, I uh, was not just bringing the, the aid to, to Bosnia but I was taking out the stories I was taking out, uh, even in a number of the moments I organized outside of the besieged Sarajevo uh, art and cultural events, showing how uh, mm. spiritually and artistically Sarajevo is defending itself from the, from the Serbian uh, uh, aggression. Because for me, it has been very, very important not to allow that uh, uh, the world around us reduce us to the victims and reduce us to somebody who needs to get the the, 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 the little humanitarian aid, let's Mm -hmm. say, because... For me, it has been very, very important to say no, 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 guys. This is about our dignity. We have a dignity. Mm-hmm. We are, we are, we are human beings. We are in a certain mm-hmm. way now more human beings than anybody else. Uh, and so, I, I was investing a lot, a lot of time in basically showing uh, uh, the Sarajevo cultural and artistic resistance to the to, to the to the war.
1: Mm, that's wonderful, and. Another thing I'm wondering about your experience with that in terms of how it highlights and contrasts with how we're seeing with Myanmar is that Uh, now in Myanmar, of course, many people are just trying to survive, uh, to look at dealing with trauma or leading a mentally balanced life going forward. These are not privileges that really anyone has there and just the mere survival. But someday this is going to end and there are going to be survivors. And then one moves on from this in some way. Yet, I'm sure that these things mark you to some degree for better and for worse in ways that It's very hard to escape from. They they start to define you and revisit some of these scenes of great sacrifice and humanity, as well as the opposite of that as one moves forward. So looking at yourself and your own journey and everything you went through and everything you gave, how has this experience of of supporting, of being in a role, of uh, the role that you played in the Bosnian Civil War. Uh, how has that stayed with you? How has it defined you for better, for worse, after the conflict ended?
0: Uh, let me give you first, uh, uh, let's say a story or example of my mother. She has been in a Sarajevo during the whole war, and uh, at the end of the war, she has been in a, such a deep depression. In, in a certain way, post war situation is uh, is even harder than the war during the war uh, you basically just pump all these uh, survival adrenaline in yourself uh, in order to survive but then one in a moment when Carla, you became well, let's say that, okay, war is now, I ended, but everything around you and your life is destroyed. Uh, that is another big challenge. And and my mother has been really kind of in such a deep depression that uh, that she and us believe, let's say, that she will never come back. Uh, and mm-hmm. then let's say, she started, let's say, with one small kind of volunteer group uh, to paint she was not painting before ever but she started to paint and suddenly she discovered that she's a very talented painter and since that time she has uh, made uh, thousands of the of the beautiful paintings and uh, and that is how she uh, recovered uh, and reconnected with the, with the with the new beginning of the of the, of the life so this is something what, let's say, different people in Myanmar also individually will need to find uh, their own way, how they will transform their trauma and their pain uh, into something either creative or active or, or reflective or whatever. Uh, I have also collapsed after the end of the war. I, I, I spent at the end of the war a couple of months being basically broken person. Uh, but then I uh, undertook uh, uh, a year and a half long uh, trip to the Southeast Asia. Uh, I moved. It was 1997. I moved to the Hong Kong, and from Hong Kong, I was making documentary films uh, across the Southeast Asia, and uh, uh, this. Cre- disconnecting myself from 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 bosnia in that moment and plunging myself into the experience of the of the new continent of the new culture of the of the everything in a certain way different than what i have known a new exploring but transforming it immediately into documentary films and into reflection uh, helped me uh, helped me a lot let's say to recover and then at the end of the story i at the end of the day i Transformed my uh, experience from the Bosnia into conscious decision that uh, I will continue to help people who are going through the similar experiences like we have gone in, into Bosnia. My own experience made a specific sensibility in myself. Let's say so. I sometimes have a feeling that I I hear and I feel. Let's say when I when I see the pe- people's pain. And uh, and then I, I I made it myself kind of ready to to turn my own trauma into the action for others.
1: Mm, right. Yeah. That that was my where my next question was going. We were looking at first on a personal level of how one overcomes and has uh, after going through some traumatic experience of just surviving. Then once one survives, how to how to live back in the world with a sense of humanity with this. Uh, with 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 a sense of balance after what one had to do and suppress in order to get through it, but then the second question is the follow up for that is really looking at these wider themes and when people might be involved in a in an immediate conflict, or very acute things that are happening every day. There could be an attention to that uh, and 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 trying to resolve it and and get through it, but then once that does resolve, those values that becomes part of one's Outlook in the world and and in life. And that certainly is the case for you, as you've just explained that the uh, how you were plunging into democracy and human rights and how it related directly to you, into your family, into your home, once that reached some kind of resolution, you then took those values in around the world and looking at other societies that did not have those privileges that Uh, That so many of us have and, and don't realize what happens when they're stripped away. So after you mentioned a bit about how you went to Southeast Asia and set up there and did some documentary. What else did you do to bring these values more into the world and to find and support people that were that that were lacking these as you would lack them in Bosnia?
0: I was. Um, I had in set away two starting points after the end of the war in my country and my personal experience. Uh, so one starting point is this personal transformation, which uh, through which I have gone. But another starting point has been basically the story of the of the. Czechoslovakia or then later on Czech Republic, that means country which has I was living in uh, and that was the country which has uh, basically gone through the two occupations Nazi occupation and after that uh, uh, Moscow communist occupation that has been the country which has basically been long, long time under the uh, dictatorship and then it became free in, a, in a 1989 and started to Basically, enjoy its own freedom, but, uh, and in a certain way to grab the, all the opportunities which uh, uh, have been opened for the people living in the Czech Republic uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and uh, a lot of Czechs here basically wanted to be as rich as Germans. They wanted to have as good cars as the Germans. But luckily, let's say, there has been also another group of the Czechs, uh, that means former dissidents, let's say, very much kind of the people like uh, Vaclav Havel, uh, who articulated for themselves in that moment uh, a very simple but very powerful idea. uh, And they said... Somebody has helped us as a, as a Czech dissidents facing uh, the totalitarian communist regime, which we believed will never end, uh, but we still opposed it. And somebody was standing be, behind us. So now, when we got free, now it's our obligation, or it's now our chance, our opportunity uh, to help others who are still living in a in a dictatorship, so who are still uh, in the middle of the of the wars. So that has. Been been a not huge, but not completely small group of the, of the very active Czechs, uh, and, and the part of the society who felt this strong commitment that now when we are free, we need uh, to uh, take the responsibility uh, for the suffering uh, of the others, and not just, let's say, from this humanitarian point of view, but really from the point of view of the, of the freedom. Because that has been our our most profound experience here in the Czech Republic, you know, fighting or dreaming about freedom, waiting for the freedom, sacrificing for the freedom, fighting for the freedom, and finally getting it. And uh, and that has been another kind of stream or another wave on which I was riding in that moment with a, with a group of the Czech uh, uh, people, and we started to get involved in a, in, a, in a helping people in the conflicts in a, in a Kosovo, in a Chechnya, in a territory of former Yugoslavia, and many other countries. But also we started to travel to the dictatorships countries, to Cuba, to Belarus, to to Burma, and uh, and to me the families of the political prisoners, to meet the dissidents who have not been in the jail in that time, and to, to show to them that somebody cares for them, that somebody is aware, and that somebody is ready to help. And that was also then the moment when the Havel uh, nominating Aung San Suu Kyi for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, which, which he got, uh, and then this kind of specific relation between the Czechs and the people in Myanmar and democracy movement in Myanmar started to uh
1: That's That's really incredible. And it's really incredible to hear that story because you think about a people that are going through something that is so traumatic and so difficult. And when they come out the other end, just wanting to get to some normalcy in life, maybe even as you mentioned, some comfort, like being rich, like the Germans, but, uh, and yet there are also people with the consciousness that are looking at the freedom that they achieved uh, against all odds and that is not a freedom other people in the world have, and they're going to work on that behalf. That's, that's really inspiring. It Hearing that, it reminds me of when I visited Hiroshima and in Japan. And when I, when I went, I, one of the things that really struck me and really surprised me was how international... The international humanitarian, the museum, and the grounds were. Of course, they talked about Hiroshima and the context and the bomb dropping there and all that information, but there was so much information there about, in general, about the danger of nuclear weapons around the world and the need for for everyone to be vigilant and to be aware. And to it was almost like this uh, the, this this deep scar and trauma that that Hiroshima experienced was something that they were bringing out through their exhibitions, not only. To remember themselves what they faced and their own trauma and disruption, but as an example for humanity not to do again. And it it just really struck me as something I hadn't seen in many other historical monuments of how universal and contemporary that, that message was. And to think of how Czech Republic has done that, especially with Havel, that's quite inspiring. Uh, and you also touch upon this unique relationship between the Czech Republic and Myanmar, which is not one that I think many would, would be intuitive to many people who aren't following this. And I should mention that someone on my team, as I was preparing for this interview, and I, I, I dropped some names of some of yourself and, uh, and, and, and others associated with Czech Republic that I'm, I'm undertaking some interviews soon. He did some Google searches. This is a team member in Yangon. He wrote back, and said, I had no idea that the Czech people had been supporting us to this extent. He just this sense of like, I thought we were so alone. I had no idea they cared so much about us. So on that note, uh, for for those who don't know how the Czech Republic has, uh, has been there as a friend for Myanmar and this kind of special connection, talk a bit about how that began and how that has progressed through the years.
0: It was uh, it was really started uh, uh, very much with uh, let's say Havel and and people in his team in that moment. Uh, uh, in a certain way, we can't say denying Nobel Peace Prize for him because it doesn't work that uh, that way. Uh, but. Oh, in the early 90s Havel was a global celebrity and uh, and then there has been a lot of people approaching him and saying oh Mr President we will nominate you for the Nobel peace prize you are you have done so much and so on and he was he was extraordinarily modest person he was extraordinary you know, very very special person and uh, and he never liked to be in a spotlight, he, he in that moment he was very much in a spotlight but he never liked to be in a spotlight and he had this approach oh now I'm in a spotlight so I will invite these poor dissidents let's say around the world because he knows this experience of being dissident, being under the threat, being rejected and then let's say a spotlight will come on me and then I will move in a shadow and let the dissident let's say come into the spotlight so that world sees them and he was doing that let's say relatively systematically and that was the in one moment also kind of decision between him and us let's say let's kind of start to bring the Aung San Suu Kyi the the Myanmar uh, activists uh, to uh, into the spotlight I have visited first time Myanmar when basically Havel and uh, told me and other friend go there and bring anything, bring some photos, bring some uh, videos, bring some testimonies, and then we will do the exhibition in the Czech Republic. I will come to this exhibition because I will come. Then a lot of media will come, and then we will tell the story of the Myanmar to the to the other people. And then we have been doing it for quite a number of the year. We are basically together with Havel using his popularity, his global star status in order to draw attention to the Myanmar, but also to the activists in Cuba, to the activists in uh, in, uh, in uh, Belarus, and uh, in a number of the other other countries. And parallel to that, the organizations with which I have been in that moment, which was called People in Need, it was growing as the organization and starting to be involved in a many, many more projects and many other ways how to operate but the beginning has been this collaboration with the havel and and basically bringing attention to the to the activists families of the political prisoners uh, dissidents we also have been then travelling to these places or meeting people on the border area and bringing them some small uh, assistance financial aid computers and, and stuff like that but i think let's say this kind of a genuine sense of the friendship and commitment and using for very long time, let's say, Havel's celebrity status uh, has been the most important uh, thing what we have done.
1: Mm, right. So your first first visit to Myanmar was under Havel's suggestion of wanting to to go to Myanmar, a dictatorship at that time, and report on what you saw, how you can help, how you can bring elements from that country and culture into check, so that more people can understand and be aware. Uh, can you tell us what year that was when you went, and what your impressions were, and what you did on that trip?
0: I have uh, I have done two things. I have. Uh... Basically I made uh, uh, during that first trip uh, or there has been two trips combined. On the first trips we have just doing a little bit taking basically genre photos from the streets of the Yangon. Uh, We have uh Met just few people not to endanger anybody, but then and prepared ourselves for the second trip. The second trip I have done, let's say, with uh, already with a uh, small camera. Uh, I have spent a certain amount of the time uh, uh, on the Thai-Barma border uh, filming. Uh, I was making a film about uh, basically three generations of the political prisoners in Myanmar, and that film was finished with the portrait of the Minkonang who has been in that moment in a jail in a jail so the whole film was used for the advocacy for for his N88 generation uh, Mm -hmm. guy's uh, release uh, but and then I basically spent the talk in a, in a, on a border area with uh, I would say previous generations of the, of the political prisoners who in that moment have been already released and, and on the border. And then in one moment I entered into the country and spent uh, 10 days there doing two secret filmings and then also kind of doing a certain filming around the, around the streets.
1: Mm, and so, as someone who has lived through conflict in your homeland, and who has since dedicated himself to the causes of human rights and democracy, uh, as what would you, how would you describe your initial impressions of Myanmar? There's, of course, when when you were going, there's, I would say, there's some. Uh, it's, it's characterized by some hot flashes and also some cold marks, hot flashes, meaning the periodic uprising and protests that happen as well as in the border and the ethnic areas, which are, are unfortunately hot more percentage of the time. And the more kind of cold vibe, if you, if you will, which is uh, the, the low grade oppression. It's not quite violence on the streets, but it's certainly not freedom. It's a constant uh, fear that's not named, a, a, a um, an awareness of of the terror that that could come at any time, even if it's not present. And so, as you come into this very different environment from Eastern Europe, where you were, what uh, what struck you? What what impressions happened? Did you notice similarities and things that converged with your past experience, uh, or did you were were you finding a different shape to what uh, what you'd experienced before?
0: Uh, to be frank I, I I haven't been particularly surprised by by of anything uh, in that moment when I entered into the Myanmar I have been already for some time living in a, in a other countries in Southeast Asia so in a certain way Southeast Asia was not exo- ex- exotic to me uh, the uh, I have kind of overgrown this kind of being fascinating by the by the exotic thing, and I started much more to appreciate, uh, you know, the real life and the real relations behind the, the exotic facade. On the other side, I, I have been already in that moment traveling to Cuba, to other mm-hmm. other dictatorship. I have spent a significant part of my life already in that moment into the into the societies in and states which are police state. Mm-hmm. So in a certain way, I, I had this fear in my I know what this Mm -hmm. fear is. So for me, Mm -hmm. it was more kind of striking uh, how these things are are similar. I say how basically, you know, pretty much everywhere uh, the people feel the fear in the same way. The police uh, states can be, you know, packaged in this way or Mm -hmm. another way. But at the end of the day, they are in a very banal, simple way, uh, same. Uh, uh, how, you know, in, in, in the way how they inflict, um, how, how they introduce fear in the people. So, so I was, when I was there, I was really kind of very, very focused on what is my task, what I need to do, and, and how to do it uh, in a way that I uh, reduce uh, the risk on anybody with whom I will
1: uh, have a meeting. Right. That, that was actually my follow-up question. And I was curious about the, as someone who has studied and been to so many places where conflict and authoritarianism are present, uh, looking at in what ways Myanmar might be similar, what, uh, what, what, basic structures of governance and society you find there that you found in other places, which you already answered. So the other part of that question is, is there any ways in which you found the Myanmar case distinct from the other places you were going that that had authoritarian structures? Is there anything that stands out that was different in how it was set up in Myanmar?
0: I have uh, started to discover this kind of different side of the Myanmar, if you want, is in a moment much later, let's say, when I basically started to uh, already uh, basically fully... Leave. I. St- I was not immediately in a, in a Myanmar. I was first in a Chiang Mai two years, and then I moved to the to the Yangon. And when I started to run the program, which was called Educational Initiative, what was comparative political science courses for the activists, former political prisoners, and uh, and ethnic activists. And uh, and there has been a period when I was for about three months always uh, literally living together sleeping together eating together and lead learning together with the groups of the 2025 20, uh, activists from Myanmar and then I started to learn much more about the country because it was much more intense relation and probably the first uh, things what places uh, in a certain way hit me uh, uh, has been when I had a, a group of the students Uh, in my class. uh, Seven of them have been from the Bahama ethnic community. Uh, All of them uh, have been former political prisoners. That means, let's say, they have spent minimum seven years in a jail. Uh, There has been a guy who has spent 15 years in a jail. Mm -hmm. So I think all together seven of them has been about 100 years in a jail. So Mm -hmm. this has been one group. And another group has been uh, 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 a little bit younger activists coming from the ethnic Uh, territories and you can more easily describe them as the children who have grown up uh, 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 in the ethnic cleansings. Uh, So I had uh, two groups of the very active people uh, in a class and both of them have been carrying uh, a huge trauma. And then the first thing what I was facing is one group blaming the other. The ethnic group Blaming the the Obama group for mm-hmm. uh, all the bad things what military has done to the ethnics, mm-hmm. and trying to get from the Obama group uh, the uh, some words of the regret, trying mm-hmm. to 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 get something. And then this Bama group, let's say, reacting on that. But hey, guys, we have not hurt you. We have been sitting in a jail. We we haven't done anything wrong. And then you had this kind of the very very tense relations between the two groups. Uh, and 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 then I, I started to kind of learn uh, much much deeper uh, about the complexities of the Myanmar society and uh, and how hard it is and it will be uh, to pull this society together and to find a common understanding. The way what I was t- saying to, in that time to my students and say, hey guys, don't try to uh, find who is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't blame each other for being wrong, but please, let's say, let just each other talk Listen to each other, but li- listen it carefully, and then, let's say, also tell to other your story. So I was trying to encourage them to, to abandon abandon this blaming game mm. and enter into the listening and uh, understanding game. But it was not easy. And then the peak of that with another group of the students, uh, I again have a Bama group and I have an ethnic group and then I have one wonderful, great uh, Rohingya girl. Mm. And then when we came together, 90% of the other students turned to me and say, let's kick her out of the class. She oh, doesn't belong wow. to us. Wow. Uh, and that was painful. That was, that was, I can't tell you how much it was painful for Let's say the, the, the colleague Rohingya girl, how painful it has for me. Uh, and, uh, and then I turn to the group and say, okay, if that is your attitude, let's pack up and everybody leaves. Yeah. She leaves, everybody yeah. leaves. Then we had, a, in a certain way, needed to absorb that. We have overcome, let's say, the immediate crisis, but it was not easy for this Rohingya girl. She felt rejected from the beginning. After a certain period of time, the part of the group turned toward her in a protective way, but the part of the group never took the understanding and protective away, so she was crying a lot, and I was in the evening, let's say, saying to her, look, if you find the strength now in this group,
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you will have a
0: strength, let's say, when you go out to the, to the big world yeah. uh, to tell what you need to tell, let's say, for everybody else. So find your strength, find your strength. And she has really kind of managed... Uh, because she has this strength internally in herself. But I think that experience also helped her a little bit additionally to understand that she needs to be able to stand. Uh, and and she's now one of the most prominent uh, kind of spokesperson of the, not only of the Rohingya, but really of the of the, of the the victims in, a, in a Myanmar. So I'm very proud. I said that she, she has been my student. And I'm very proud, let's say that, Basically, we have gone through this very, very hard experience of of kind of discussing who belongs to us and who doesn't belong. Mm -hmm.
1: That's, That's an incredible story. And it strikes me that you're doing this work during the transition period and... I imagine that so much of what you were working on then was kind of this window that not many other people had interest or access to because there were so many other things going on with investment and with the way the country was developing with opportunities that you were looking deeper under a corner that people didn't necessarily want to examine, you know, what's happening with the generals who committed these crimes? Are we just going to let them get off and keep their riches? What's happening with the people who were harmed, uh, the, uh, the, the Bamar political prisoners who've lost so much of their life and have sacrificed so much to perhaps help get us to this point. How about the ethnics and what they've gone through for generations as communities, what they're still going through and these were questions that people were, were many were not so interested in wanting to spend time on these areas, which seemed like going back when so much of the country was going forward. Of course, when the coup happened, I think it's been apparent to many people inside, outside the country, ethnic as well as Bamar, that these things were never resolved. They were an absolute mess. That's perhaps what led to the coup taking place. And now is the time to go back and start to Examine and look at these as a society in a much wider way than than I've seen done before in Myanmar. But I think it's really interesting to look at your experience because you were looking at this corner at a time when it was not so popular or interested to look at. The story was really the the Obama coming and christening Myanmar as this new democracy and freedom opening up, and these feel good stories up at least up until the uh, some. the crisis with the Rohingya got got really bad and really awful in the way it was covered in international news. But as someone like yourself who's here looking under these dark corners or messy areas that other people maybe tended to want to stay away from, what stands out For you and being in Myanmar at a time when there was so much optimism, so much was opening up, you were looking at these corners that not many were. And now since the coup has happened, this is really a defining way to understand the country and to want to resolve these issues.
0: So I, I was, you know, I was when I was living in a, in, a, in Myanmar. Uh, that was between 2011 and 2016, and that was this kind of period of the of the of the huge optimism of the of the international community. Uh, in what's happening in Myanmar, uh, I have been much more cautious and much more—I uh, would not say skeptical—because I also hoped and I also wished to the country to move forward. But uh, basically, the big amount of the of the learning what I was sharing with my colleagues in a, in a Myanmar, and they are really kind of hardcore activists. Uh, has been in a 2011, 2012, uh, uh, hey guys, this is not transition to democracy you are going through. This is transi- transition to the, in political science, describe it as a hybrid regime. Uh, that means, let's say, this is the transition to the regime in uh, which military remains the dominant uh, power in a country, and allows certain democratic facade, and uh, and we need to be the cave careful. Let's say we need to, in a certain way, think about how we use. This space of the freedom which has been open, and at the same time, don't fall in a trap—a trap of the of the pink glasses—enthusiastically uh, cheerleading uh, the transition to democracy, which was not happening there. So I have been the voice of the of the warning, the voice mm. of the deeper understanding what's going on, and I think for that reason, I have really gained a certain amount of the respect among the people because people in the Myanmar have instinctively felt that something is wrong. Mm. Uh, and and <laughs> the way they didn't need me as a foreigner or they didn't need anybody of us as a foreigner. They didn't need the uh, specific comparative political science expertise. Their instincts have been telling them that something was really not okay mm-hmm. and that they need to be careful. But because they have been surrounded by this euphoria, they have been confused. And I was mm. helping in a certain way to de- to to explain to them that they should not be confused mm. that their instincts are right, mm. and I was helping basically them find the right words, the right descriptions, uh, the right uh, parallels uh, to to translate these. Uh, good instinctive understanding of the real reality uh, and then put it in a certain explanation in words. Similar things happened uh, when uh, the Uh, the kind of radical uh, Buddhist movement started to appear when Mabata started to appear when the first communal violence started to happen in that moment I have been probably the first one probably one of the three who basically said hey guys and I started very much to talk about that I say hey guys this is not uh, communal violence. This is not uh, the whatever. I have seen this in a Chechnya. Let's say this is the military intelligence uh, starting to instigate fear into the majority population uh, through Handpicking picking the, 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 the smallest and most vulnerable group in a society to blame them as a source of the threat and anger. When I started to talk, and I said, this is manipulation, this is beginning of the pre-election campaign for the USDP and preparing preparation to attack the uh, NLD, let's say, from the position of the protection of the nation and religion. Uh, when I started to talk about that, Nineteen 5% of my Myanmar friends, and all of them have been Democrats, all of them have been uh, uh, human rights activists, people who have spent their the life in a jail uh, for fighting for the freedom. They told me, You don't understand our country, let's say you are foreigner, you are wrong, let's say we are really under the threat. And I said, Okay, let's say you might be right, I'm foreigner, I really don't understand your country, but I'm just bringing you some experiences from the other places and this, this, uh, Something is wrong here. Something is wrong here. I see the deep manipulation, uh, that the manipulation happened in other countries that happened mm-hmm. also in Serbia when Serbian nationalism was uh, happening. And for about six months, basically nobody was listening to me or I was kind of the mm-hmm. long voice in the desert. Mm-hmm. After six months and even more after one year, a lot of people are coming back to me and saying, oh, Saya, you have been right. Uh, that has been really kind of the very smart manipulation uh, and the kind of communal violence and everything what happened was really kind of manufactured, in order to basically prepare ground for the attack on the on the democratic democratic forces. So I think that with my experiences and my commitment in that moment to Myanmar, I have been in the right place, in the right time, with the right knowledge and right experiences, and uh, and that I have contributed a little bit to uh, better understanding what's going on there uh, through that. I gained a lot of uh, very, very good friendships and these very, very good pr- fr- friendships became for me the commitment which has been reactivated when the coup started because when the coup started I just felt that I need to stop everything else what mm. I'm doing and that I should stand behind my friends and former students in Myanmar.
1: Mm, so. How was it? Do you think that this Tamada, this evil regime, that before the transition, I was there before the transition, so I, I know this from my experience, was so hated and feared and despised and wanting to get away from, and then just several years into this so-called transition, suddenly there's signs on the street and and, and signboards on the roads that say, "We stand with the Tamada." You know, I stand with the with the military. They are protecting me. And it was just stunning and bewildering to see that in a few year turnaround that so many Bamar people, especially, I don't think this is so true of ethnics, but so many Bamar people uh, specifically who had been victimized and oppressed for and had their opportunities and freedoms cut off for so long that the minute they started to get those freedoms back, or maybe not, not the very minute, but, but not very long after, they start to see their oppressor as their protector. How did this transformation happen so fast? And do you find this as something that is odd or unusual or something that is uh, is 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 always a potential danger in these transition periods? I think it's
0: a typical, I think it's a typical, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a transitions of the multi-ethnic societies are really complex. Uh, uh, transitions of the... Uh, Extremely diverse societies, which have a bad history uh, behind themselves of the of the dictatorship, but also bad history of the of the communities inflicting uh, uh, heavy wounds, one or another. It's it, it's really always complex, always uh, uneasy. And then uh, you do it better if you have a wise and responsible political leadership. You do it very very bad if you have a political. and and, and power uh, leadership which uh, misuse uh, the people's prejudice, the people's fears, the people, people's angers. Uh, my explanation more specifically on the Myanmar is uh, following two things. Let's One thing is the military and military intelligence have uh, terribly misused uh, the genuine kind of buddhist uh, tradition of that country they have infiltrated uh, with the military intelligence the buddhist sangha and uh, uh, as we know in myanmar since you are two years old when you see the buddhist monk what you do you you bow you, this is the most ultimate authority in a, in a life of every single Buddhist uh, person in a country mm-hmm. uh, when you look around the country nothing functions but the Buddhist monastery is something what functions there's the place where people go to to get the the values, to get the understanding of the world, to get the food when they need food, to get some education because the state doesn't, doesn't give them education. So you have the the most respected institution in a country which has been terribly misused by the by the military in order to basically spread the fear and uh, in the in, and anger into the society. I have been once. Uh, in one small village uh, with one family and there has been a sick person there there is of course no doctor so what the family is doing they brought uh, two buddhist monks let's say to do all the all the mantras there to to save the the sick person, and then in the evening I was talking with these monks, and their first question has been, uh, "Where are you from? From the Czech Republic." The second question has been, "Do you have a Muslims there?" I said, "No, we don't have it there." Lucky country has been their response. So, and then in that moment I realized, "Oh my God!" If all around the country you have a thousands of these monks who are saying, let's say, to their uh, parishes and their villages that they will be the lucky country if the if there will be no Muslims in that country, we are in a deep problem. We are mm-hmm. and, and, and that was what military has done. Let's say they have really and military intelligence, they have done it purposely, international intentionally, and uh, and it's a very hard. It's for any society, particularly these kind of the, societies which has been a long time under the dictatorships, and they're always sick. Societies which has been long time under the dictatorships, they're the they deeply, deeply sick societies. We need mm-hmm. freedom. We need critical dialogue, critical reflection to kind of you know, heal, to overcome the deep prejudice. And when you have dictatorships, you don't have these critical mechanisms. So these societies are mm-hmm. deeply, deeply, deeply sick. And that has been one reason. Uh, the Another reason is that... Uh, uh, Societies which suffered a lot carry in themselves such a deep frustration that uh, uh, they very often don't have easy way how to overcome in a positive way. And then there is always opportunity to do it another way to blame somebody who is weaker than you who blame somebody who is a little bit different than you and who is a very, very vulnerable. So in a certain way, and, and the bad politicians know how to do it, and, uh, and they have so often in Myanmar and in other places have misused this uh, really collective psychological need to uh, get rid of your own frustration by um, mistreating somebody else who is more vulnerable than you.
1: Mm, Right. You mentioned that if there had been different political leadership, this might have been something that, as difficult as it is and as problematic as the potentialities and the tendencies are, that different political leadership could have tried to navigate a different way. So looking at that question of political leadership, especially after 2015 when the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi had greater control if not, certainly not full control but, but had more that they can do than before, uh, what is your analysis of what this political leadership did and perhaps where they, where they neglected?
0: Uh, look, I I uh... Aung San Suu Kyi is getting a lot of criticism on the on the stand uh, what she has taken on the uh, on the Rohingya issue and rightly so rightly so uh, but one thing what was really not noticed by most of the of the analytics is that uh, uh, NLD after becoming the government has done a lot to de-escalate the the hate and anger in the country, so there has not been Ang San Sochi kind of the publicly making a, you know clear stand uh, on the side of the Rohingya, but as a as a as a I would say, dominant political force in that moment, they have done a significant thing to, you know, to de-escalate all these uh, propaganda and mechanisms what Mabata and military intelligence standing behind that have been fueling for a number of the years before that. And I think let's say that you know, they deserve to uh, to get that, that that credit, let's say. They have, NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi have not been somebody who was fueling uh, the, the hate and anger in the people against the uh, minorities in order to kind of keep and gain the power. It was military doing that. Aung San Suu Kyi has not been able to confront them on the Rohingya issue. I think, let's say, that Aung San Suu Kyi has done another uh, big mistake uh, and that mistake has been that she has not integrated into the uh, first government what she was chairing uh, the ethnic uh, uh, political representatives uh, that uh, she has uh, she had the opportunity in that moment that even if NLD has been the winning party uh, overwhelmingly winning Winning party and the ethnic most of the ethnic parties have not performed well in the elections. She had opportunity uh, to integrate into the first democratically elected government many many more uh, people who will be seen by the ethnic uh, nationalities in Myanmar as their genuine representatives. And she should have done that. Let's say if she have done that. Uh, I would think, let's say, that we will today have uh, far less problems in, uh, in uh, creating the genuine uh, al- aligned front uh, which will defend the country against the, the rogue military. Uh, she has not done it uh, uh, because she believed that people want her and uh, that uh, she alone, is able to deal with the military, which has been a big strategic
1: miscalculation. Yeah. Right. So when the coup took place, can you say that you were surprised? Is this something you anticipated? What was your feeling and analysis when the coup was launched? I have uh, not uh,
0: expected that coup will happen. Uh, I have not predicted that. Uh, and that was a little bit, the coup was so obviously such a wrong move. Yeah. It was so obviously that in a certain way, even if you have all evidences, you don't want to believe in that. Mm. Uh, you, you, you just don't want to accept it because it has been so unnecessary. It has been so destructive. It has been mm. so stupid. Military had all... Yeah. How they needed They yeah. control the the basically economy of the country
1: yeah
0: and 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 they 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 have done the coup only for the personal ambition and a personal greed of the min clan and 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 then it was you know it was it was so hard to accept Uh, even if you you know your mind your uh, rational analysis tells you that might happen emotionally you don't want to accept that as a possibility because let's say it was so destructive and so Mm. unnecessary
1: Mm, right Uh, going back to some of the conversations that you were hosting in from 11 to 16 when you were in Myanmar and Trying to have these critical engagements, something stands out from what you said, which I bookmarked and wanted to come back to for current times. You were talking about the nature of the conversations you were having and the importance of this critical dialogue, even where it was extremely painful and there were biases and the groups weren't necessarily getting along. It's something that really hits my heart. I, my ba- educational background is a trainer. I worked as a trainer in Myanmar, so in a, in a different Period. I was having different kinds of conversations and and facilitating communication, which I'm I'm, I'm a big believer in the power of communication when it's uh, when it's facilitated in the right way. Uh, it can really produce magic and miracles. Uh, it's sometimes it's it's a, a privilege to be involved in. But looking at The work you were doing then, and and one of the things you mentioned about that was that this needs to be happening on a wider scale. This these kinds of conversations are essential for the country to develop. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't remember exactly how you put it. That was what uh, what I took away from it. I'm curious about where we are right now, and I guess this is a two part question. First is there the kinds of conversations that you were having the kinds of conversations that are possible and having the widely diverse and different ethnic and religious and geographical groups in Myanmar come and talk to each other to have an honest dialogue to listen with an open heart even when it's painful to share their stories is that 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 kind of critical dialogue and conversation is there any place for that to happen now or is, do, you, do you feel that the current need is simply to resist the military? That's the overriding priority and that this is a dialogue that should be happening hopefully once the military is defeated. Or what role do you see those kinds of critical engagements playing in current days or near future?
0: I think that uh, uh, this dialogue and critical thinking uh, uh, needs freedom and needs time. Uh, so for that reason, uh, I think that uh, it's a good when it's, if it is still going on and it's partly still going on, but I do think that uh, uh, the real moment uh, for that will come uh, if and when uh, the country will again get the, the freedom. I think that what is now much more important is to have the, the common victory. That, uh, that we have the uh, different groups uh, joining together and uh, defeating junta uh, uh, and defeating uh, Min Aung because mm-hmm. if they have a common victory, then they will have a completely new uh, layer of the, of the deep relations and, and trust if you want. And, and that will be a far better starting point for uh, also discussing how the country should look like uh, in the future and how to reconcile all these uh, uh, different uh, complexities and disproportionalities. Uh, and so my attitude in this moment is, hey guys, let's focus as much as we can, that we collectively uh, participate and join and contribute as much as we can uh, to uh, weaken the Tatmado in order to remove the Minang Klang and military, and, and then let's kind of pick up and uh, discuss all other things uh, one by one.
1: Mm. And you talked about your, somewhat your surprise that the coup was launched. Of course, it was a really terrible decision. As someone who has also spent so much time studying the country and being involved in different ways from different angles, looking now at the resistance movement that has developed, the the, and the wider CDM, the NUG, the, um, the PDFs that are there. What what strikes you about the resistance movement in the last year and a half? Uh, have, would you say that you would have predicted some of the way that it's gone, or are there things that have stood out and surprised you?
0: Uh, I, I'm surprised and impressed uh, how much resilience, strength, creativity uh, the movement uh, has been able to uh, show and bring back uh, every single day and every single week, uh, uh, month after month for already 18, 19 months. I'm really impressed. I, I'm impressed. I, I know, because I'm quite long time involved in a, in the struggles of the people for freedom in, a, in a many, many places around the world, and. Uh, in most of the places, when you have this mass popular uprising of the millions of the people aspiring from the freedom, when they face the that level of the brutality and that level of the repression, what we are facing in a Myanmar, and when that repression goes on for three, four months, then usually people uh, give up. It's simply too much. Uh, to endure and that kind of the uh, level, uh, that that level of the of the of the repression uh, and pressure. Uh, so what what really kind of the, it me, what uh, uh, surprises me, what inspires me, what what uh, creates adoration in me is the internal strength. An internal courage of the people of Myanmar uh, to not to give up this time and to, to fight back.
1: Mm, right, since as the Myanmar conflict has gone on, of course, there's been a crisis that developed in Ukraine and there have been some analyses contrasting the two conflicts, the nature of them, the support or lack of support that one is getting compared to the other. We did a whole show on this examining the uh, the crises and the responses to Ukraine and to Myanmar. Uh, what are your thoughts in looking at how these conflicts have progressed, the resistance movements, the international support, the awareness and advocacy? What do you see as similarities and differences between Ukraine and Myanmar now?
0: So uh, look, let's say Ukraine. Uh, the war in Ukraine didn't started in two thousand twenty-two. Right, right. The war mm-hmm. in Ukraine started in two thousand fourteen, and uh, for a very very long period of time, nobody was standing up behind Ukrainians. Nobody was kind of helping them. So so that was my first response. Uh, it was not that the outside world helped Ukrainians, but it was Ukrainians who helped themselves. Let's say who have shown for the for the number of years extraordinary strength and determination. Not to give up. So, so, so that is the first factor. I said the world is not coming to help anybody uh, because somebody is weak. The world sometimes comes to help you when you show determination and strength and 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 readiness mm-hmm. to, to 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 defend
1: yourself. Well said. Yeah.
0: So uh, the second thing is. Uh, uh, The world, or the world, it's not world, it it was Europe and United States uh, coming to uh, help Ukraine, uh, not because Ukraine is democracy under the attack of the dictatorship. They are coming to help Ukraine because Ukraine is defending European security. Uh, The uh, Russian aggression on the Ukraine has uh, really hit the deepest fears of the countries a little bit more on the west from Ukraine, meaning us in the Czech Republic, Poles, and others who have been occupied, Baltic states, who have been occupied by the, by the Moscow for, for, for decades. So, so Europe has been shaken uh, with the fear that uh, uh, you know, Russian aggression has started in Ukraine and will go on further to Europe. And, and, and then Europe is now helping Ukraine to defend itself. There is no uh, geopolitical security, deep national interest of either uh, Europe or even United States in a Myanmar. Uh, and that is the big difference. That's a, that, that's, that's a, that's a painful difference, but it's, it is the difference. Uh, I can also say, you know, nobody of us either in Myanmar or in Europe cared uh, when the Russians are helping Assad kill the Syrians, so we have been, you know, in a moment when mm-hmm. Assad, uh, Russians are helping uh, Assad, helping Assad, you know, do the same thing what now junta is doing in uh, in Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar had a pretty good relations with Putin and with Russia. So in a certain way, we also should kind of go back and ask ourselves, you know, the world is not behaving better to us than we have been fa- behaved to the others. Uh, the third reason, important reason, is unfortunately Myanmar has this bad bad neighborhood uh that basically none of the countries around the region uh around the myanmar is really kind of ready to stand behind the democratic movement although it was interest not only of the myanmar but also of the neighboring country and uh, and the west is very very reluctant to make uh, myanmar uh the battlefield of the proxy war between the u.s and the china uh that that will not you know be good for the Myanmar mm. uh, so so I think that the West and all others should do much much more and I'm every day trying to persuade mm. everybody whom I can that we should do uh, much much more uh, but uh, there is kind of also that important reason you can send the weapons to, to Ukraine let's say because we have direct border between the Western democracy and Ukraine there is no border around Myanmar through which let's say you can get the, the, the Western weapons to the democratic movement, in a moment when we do that, China will fully stand behind the junta and and that Mm. will not be in the interest of everybody,
1: anybody. Mm, I appreciate how you mentioned that just because a country is weak does not mean that the international community will come and support it. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes they make more mess of it and sometimes they look away and don't do anything and that if a people and country want to be free, they need to stand up and show their compelling commitment and sacrifices to what they're trying to aim for, as well as showing that they have a chance of actually succeeding. And then from there, there might be some help and assistance that comes. And towards those ends, we've seen a resistance movement here in Myanmar that we've never seen in 70 years since uh, since the initial coup of 62 of just how uh, how how unified they've been how uh, what they've done and being able to bring the fight back and For those who haven't been following as closely in the initial days and months after the coup, there were a series of nonviolent protests that people took to the streets, tried to encourage soldiers and police to lay down their arms and join their side, appealed to international community for dialogue and R2P and other things. The military responded extremely violently with their crackdown, and that ultimately led to the creation of PDF units of the People's Defense Force, along with EAOs, the ethnic armed organizations, and we've seen a, an, an armed resistance take place in many forms now across the country. So what, how, to, to what degree have you been following the formation of these PDF and EAOs and their response, and what are your thoughts on what they've been able to do and what they should be doing in an extremely difficult set of circumstances? I was, I
0: was, I was following it very, very closely. I was, I'm in contact with kind of the people whom I know well, let's say, who have been the part of the of the of the of the peaceful protests, and in one moment have gone and, and joined the, the 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 armed resistance movement. But it's also necessary to say that, uh, and it is impressive that that's another side. What is impressive, the the civic resistance to the military junta didn't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, what we have now is not kind of the civic resistance uh, shifting uh, to the armed resistance uh, because, let's say, that uh, they face uh, all the brutality and killing of the junta. What we have is uh, is a genuine, strong, nationwide, extremely creative, extremely strong, uh, uh, popular civic resistance which lasted for a uh, 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 three, four months uh, trying to, in a peaceful way, in a non-violent way, to stop Junta from consolidating power. And they succeeded to stop Junta from consolidating power. Mm -hmm. Coming under this repression, uh, they have been calling for the international community to come and help. Nobody came to help. And in one moment, people have a choice. They have a choice to give up Mm -hmm. and then spend the next 20 years under the military dictatorship and then after 20 years raise up again or they had a, a opportunity or, or option and choice to say okay we continue to resist and defend our, ourselves with all means which we have including the the military uh, uh, arms arms resistance so they just expanded uh, the, the the ways how they are defending themselves so they are still continuing the the mass civic resistance and at the same time let's say they have developed uh, uh, capacity and effort to 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 fight them with the, with the arms nobody's arming them nobody is helping them so it's a really kind of the You're fighting with the homemade guns and and whatever, you can smuggle a little bit to the country or recapture from the from the military. And and you move from the basically having zero uh, guerrilla force in a country to mm-hmm. some, what is now probably about 100 uh, people engaged in all these uh, guerrilla guerrilla movements. So that was impressive. Problem is that uh, uh, we are now in a, in, a, in a very negative stalemate in which uh, Junta cannot defeat the resistance movement anymore. There is mm-hmm. no chance how Junta can do it. Mm-hmm. But junta can continue to to you know do a lot of harm, a lot of destruction of the of the people, villages, economy, and so on. And resistance can block junta from consolidated power, but it cannot uh, it cannot. Uh, Toply down anytime soon and then we are in this kind of a negative dynamic which is just kind of the deepening uh the destruction and melting down of the country and we are more and more moving in the direction of myanmar de facto uh, starting to to break into the different uh, fragments of the territory controlled by the different armed forces mm-hmm. uh, which is very very kind of the dark development. Yeah. And I'm really kind of the extraordinary... I don't know, angry that the neighbors of Myanmar and international community don't want to see that reality and that they are still inactively sitting and waiting uh, for something, let's say, to happen internally so that, in a certain way, fire extinguish, extinguish itself. But fire will not extinguish itself and country will keep on collapsing and basically maybe come into a situation which will be irreparable and then we will have a country that Divided into the five, six, seven different, you know, fragments with mm-hmm. the different uh, uh, armed forces,
1: and 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 it will be hell to live in that. There, there's so much there. there. There's so much that ground that you covered that is is really essential to going back and exploring and understanding. The first thing is that you said something quite profound, which I've now seen as a sediment among various thinkers, different articles, different analysis have been putting forward, which is some variation of the line, the military cannot win. The military is not, there is no pathway for them for victory. I, I don't, I think I would like to say that with a little hesitation because I, I don't want to tempt the gods of fate by saying that it's a, uh, it's something they completely can't do given um, how history can turn on a dime at times. But I want to go back to that statement of where the stalemate that they're locked in and that the military is, is not. So is not entirely an offensive unit as they've been before. In many ways, they're simply trying to now defend themselves from the attacks that they're getting from PDFs and EAOs. Um, revisiting that statement and perhaps expanding on it and explaining it, can you share some of the thinking behind the, uh, the current situation the military finds itself in? And, and do you believe that there, there really is very little or perhaps even zero chance that the military can come back out on top?
0: Military can come back under the top under one condition,
1: and that is if the,
0: uh, Russia and China will actively uh, uh, provide sustained support to the military, and in a way that basically China will let uh, Russia to be kind of visible uh, player helping. Mm-hmm. but China is doing it as well, let's say in a in a, in a significant way let's say that, mm-hmm. that, that can then, then that leads us to the to the something similar like like uh, like Syria mm-hmm. uh, So far China is playing very complex game and has not kind of decided to bet fully uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the military. And on the other side, let's say the, if other countries uh, remain inactive, uh, then we are just prolonging this kind of negative dynamic and uh, negative stalemate. If there will be more kind of the active uh, assistance to the uh, alliance, of the democratic and ethnic forces, I think that we can turn dynamic uh, in another direction. But uh, even more importantly than uh, international uh, assistance uh, would be to reactivate uh, the political process inside the country uh, in uh, strengthening uh, the alliance of the anti-junta forces and that if that uh, uh, revigorated uh, political process will in this moment articulate a very clear uh, roadmap how the future of the Myanmar can look like n- without Minna and and without Junta, if they will kind of uh, uh, give the, the credible narrative showing that there is an alliance behind the, that narrative, that can change the position of the China, that can change the position of the international community, and that can uh, additionally uh, crack the military itself uh, internally.
1: Mm, how can that be done?
0: That was the homework, what the uh, political and other actors and players in Myanmar uh, must do. They uh, they have a unique historic opportunity to get rid from the military dictatorship, uh, but they need to come together. Uh, Now we have a situation in which the glass of the alliance is half full. If they make it uh, full, uh, they will uh, win in this uh, struggle. After they win this struggle, uh, it will be still not easy to fix a deep, complex problems of this country, but there will be a re- realistic chance. Mm, that's, yeah,
1: that, that's quite a bit to take in. And that yeah, was, I, that
0: mm-hmm. was something what I'm kind of the talking Basically, every day to Mm. every single person whom I know in Myanmar,
1: Mm. you know,
0: don't wait somebody from outside to help you Mm -hmm. because they will not Uh, do it yourself uh, by, let's say, uh, you know, strengthening your internal uh, alliance. And then you can stretch the Tatmadaw to the breaking point of junta. You will not stretch Tatmadaw to the breaking point of the Tatmadaw, but you can stretch Tatmadaw to the breaking point of the junta. If we remove the junta, we can set that country onto another trajectory in which it will be possible to, you know, find the consensus how the country should look like and also to reform the the, the, the Tatmadaw.
1: And it seems like that would ostensibly be the role of the NUG in trying to be that top leadership, uh, is that, um, do, do you see that as, as something that is within the NUG's remit or is that something that other groups should be taking on themselves as well? I think that's a responsibility of everybody. Uh,
0: if we think that it's a responsibility of the NEOG, then we will not come far. I, say, I mm-hmm. think that's <laughs> right. really kind yeah. of the responsibility of the everybody in a certain way. You know, the, every single individual can contribute to that. Every single civil society organization can contribute to that. Every single kind of armed um, group can contribute to that. And, and, and we need, in a certain way, uh, or at least that's what I'm saying to my friends to the Myanmar. You know, we need the public narratives, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Which from right. coming from many, many different corners, not from one NUG mm-hmm. or from one. Let's say we need the public narratives coming from the many, many different corners and saying we need now to come together in order to defeat the the biggest problem of our country. And then we will use the freedom which we will get. Let's say to sit together and to discuss and to fix all other other problems. It will take time. We might agree or disagree, but if we will be defeated. Let's say in this struggle now, the mm-hmm. next 20 years, we will not get a chance, but we will live in a, in a slavery, we will live under the uh, 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 oppression, we will live under the kleptocratic regime, mm-hmm. which will be kind of the serving the greed of the Mindhung his family, and 10 mm-hmm. other families.
1: Right. In a country where there's not freedom of expression and there's not free association, obviously, with the kind of conflict that's going on and the nature of the military regime, how can groups and individuals safely try to engage with these kind of dialogues and coalitions that tell stories and show the wider world what they're doing and how they're doing it while also being mindful of their own safety and security concerns?
0: We have uh, independent media, brave independent media in in Myanmar, which uh, miraculously, through their own deep sense of the mission, uh, survived and keep on going. So the public space exists there. There is, you know, there, there is a public space which is followed by the million of the citizens of that country and quite a significant number of the people from abroad. And, uh, and that public space let's say, needs to be uh, filled with, uh, with uh, really charismatic, brave uh, visions of the future of the country and in a certain really credible promise Uh, how the country can uh, come and live together as a, as a United nations.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Right. Um, Just going back to the PDF. I also want to ask, we were talking before about how these groups were effectively forming and armed resistance, even though they didn't have proper background and training or material or weapons or anything else, but that they have been a force to be reckoned with. On the other hand, one of the concerns is code of conduct and, um the the way that these units are organized and and what and how they're doing who under whose auspices are their actions taking place and who's controlling them and the dangers of things getting out of hand so can you speak to what you've seen about how these armed groups have tried to uh, in one sense i guess retain their humanity and to to not violate international norms while also having to fight a a very um uh, a, a kind of a kind of warfare and conflict that is is very unpredictable and very spontaneous and something they have no background in.
0: Look, if uh, there is now one billion U.S. dollars of the money of the Myanmar people sitting in a in a bank uh, in the United States, if that one billion U.S. dollars will come to the NUG, uh, we will have a code of the conduct in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, if we put resources into the hands of the of the of the genuine democratic uh, and federalist uh, political force in a country, if we put the resources into the existing alliance, which is not perfect, which is uh, fragile and vulnerable, but is the best hope what the country have, uh, uh, they will uh, succeed to consolidate the chain of the command, they will succeed to consolidate the the proper behavior of the of the soldiers on the ground. Uh, in a situation when basically they have very, very limited resources which are mobilized and recruited through the assistance of the diaspora, Uh, they don't have too much leverage uh, uh, to use uh, in order to really kind of bring all these different forces together uh, into the unified chain of the command. And then I, I personally find it a little bit, hypocritic and unfair let's say than basically to say oh everybody is committing the crimes mm-hmm. or so everybody is to be blamed. Let's say so I have mm-hmm. heard that, that that story one millionth time during the war in <laughs> the yeah, that's the easiest yeah. way how right. to find excuse not to kind of make a hard choice and stand behind somebody to say everybody is to be blamed. Let's say so. No, let's say if if Serbian army has massacred nine thousand men in the city of Srebrenica, uh, that's not the same as a kind of the. S- troop of the 30 people, let's say then killing a civilian in a Serbian village. That's simply not the same. Let's say when you put the people in a despair situation, you abandon them and you don't help them. Yes, people do the 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 the, the bad things. Let's say, that's, that, that's the war. Uh, so in a certain way I I think let's say this kind of the you know, there is a full understanding within the NUG and with the, between the kind of the government that they need to have a, 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 a proper behavior and command over their soldiers. They're doing all what they can to impose that. Uh, but, you know, international community doing nothing, really nothing mm, to help mm. them. At the same time saying, let's say that, oh, everybody is to be blamed. That's a deeply hypocrisy. <laughs>
1: Yes. What about Yeah. Whatever happens. What about this? Yeah. What about that? What, what about ism? So, um, but about this $1 billion, I've heard about this since the early days of the coup, that this money of the NUGs sitting there in DC, they don't have access to it. I've never heard a proper explanation as to why they don't have access to their money and what is happening to try to get access to it. Do you know more about that fund? As far as
0: I know, I also don't know kind of a lot because I'm not kind of the, in any way, kind of the expert in these kind of the, of the things. Let's say my understanding is that uh, NUG is not kind of seen and recognized as a legitimate government by the uh, by the U.S. government. Let's say the U.S. government is supporting the in a in a kind of modest, limited way, and thanks God for that. It's supporting the the spring revolution let's say like that Uh, but uh, they have not kind of recognized myanmar as uh, recognized nug as a legitimate government and for that reason let's say they probably think let's say that they are not allowed to give that money to to them until it was kind of decided who is the the De facto uh, government
1: of the of the country, but I don't know this details. I that that's outside of my expertise. So that's all quite a complex picture that's being painted of a lot of different forces that are moving in different directions and in different ways. And I think at this current time there could be a danger of those of us that are supporting to feel, even from afar, feeling disappointed or losing hope, uh, perhaps pessimistic. But I think it's also good to carry that mental spirit and the optimism of what can happen and what is happening among the movement. So with that in mind, what uh, are, are there stories or things that you think about that keep you going and give you hope even during the darkest days since the coup?
0: Look, let's see, there is one uh, beautiful story uh, which I discovered really by chance when I was uh, uh, still in that moment living in Chiang Mai, so I have also my, my young kids with me, and then in the evening I was reading them these illustrated uh, Buddhist stories, and then one of these stories... Talked to me and in a certain way has been inspiring for me ever since. And the story goes like that. Is it? Uh, there is the, 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 the fire starts in a forest. So the, it's a big fire. So all the animals are escaping, trying to save their life. And then suddenly there is one small bird who basically is going, picking up uh, drops of the water from the lake and trying to ex- extinguish the fire. And then all these escaping animals are saying, hey, stupid girl, or stupid uh, bird, what you are doing, run away and save your life. And then the birds say, no, if you don't want to help me, don't take my time, I need to do my duty and then she the bird continues to bring these drops of the water to the to the huge fire and then the gods on a, on a, on a heaven somewhere was looking that and say oh look at this stupid bird and then they said the the messenger to tell to bird to escape and the messenger say, hey, stupid, the bird, go and save your life. And the bird responded, if you don't want to help me, don't waste my time. I have my duty to do. And then the bird continued to bring the drops of the water. And then the gods are standing above and looking and saying, oh, what we should do? And then we say, okay, let's send the rain. And then they send the rain and the rain is extinguished the fire. And, uh, and then when you read that, then you ask yourself who really extinguished the fire. And you can say, okay, it has been the miracle. It has been the gods who sent the rain, but you can take it from the other side and say, no, it was really the small bird who extinguished the fire. And, uh, and I see so many people now in a Myanmar, let's say, who are acting as these small birds which are taking the drops of they can pick up, bringing it to the, the big, big forest fire in their country and doing what they can to extinguish that. And when I see them doing that, let's say, then I feel that I should do the same. I should every single day bring my drop. And, uh, and that's the way to go. That's the way that how we can extinguish the fire. And that was the, the hope I have. So I don't have this kind of the hope or everything will be fine because we are going really through the very hard, painful, and tragic uh, peri- uh, period. And we don't know uh, how things will develop. But I think if we go deep and stuck to this uh, attitude that yes, we can bring our drops uh, I think we have a good chance to uh,
1: stop the carbon fire in Myanmar. That's wonderful. That's really inspiring. It, it inspires me to think of what more drops I have on hand and my resources and background, and I hope to listeners as well. It uh, makes listeners also reflect on, even if it's just one small drop, none of us can put out an entire fire by our own means, but just, just a little bit of drop here or there to help people and be a witness and be a friend for those who are sacrificing and risking so much for democracy and human rights going forward. So that's a a lovely story. And, uh, And it's been great talking with you as well. You've really brought some great thoughts and reflections into the current crisis, as well as your background and how that's relevant to the... Trajectory that Myanmar's been on. So, thanks so much for taking thank this time you to very join much. With us. It has
0: been also a real, real pleasure, pleasure, and and for me, and and thank you for the work you are doing, for bringing the voices of the of the good and important people from Myanmar to the outside, and also bringing these kind of voices back because this is also necessary. It's necessary to be this loop. Uh, which is taking the voices from inside and 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 beam it back to the society because that's also one of the ways how we we find the strength and encouragement to 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 go uh, through it and as churchill said when you are going through the hell don't stop
1: Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode in full. If you've gotten this far, then you've heard much of what this important guest has to say. And if you found their story of value, please consider taking a further step beyond just being a listener and become an active supporter. Any donation you provide is now being sent to Myanmar to help those being impacted by the current crisis. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the civil disobedience movement, CDM, families of deceased victims, internally displaced person IDP camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects, as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause, and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info@betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Oh, look at